everybody, and welcome to a new episode of StartupRad.io, your podcast show with startup news and interviews from Germany. Hello and welcome everybody to another interview at StartupRad.io, your number one podcast source for news, interviews, and events from the German startup world. Today, would not come as a surprise to you that I have another guest here. Hello, would you like to tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure, happy to. My name is Thomas, uh, Thomas Georgatze. I'm uh, the CEO and one of the founders of Raisin. Um, Raisin is a Europe-wide marketplace for um, deposits and savings. I myself am a um, Georgian national, live in Germany since 1995, and am married, have one uh, small kid, and happy to be here today with you. That is great. To just get a little bit in the story before raising, can you tell us a little bit what you did actually before I may tell the listeners that you're not in your 20s anymore? Uh, so I'm, uh, full disclosure, I'm 39, uh, so turning 40 next year. Uh, in my professional career before, I was a consultant um, and uh, served a lot of uh, banking clients, especially a bit of insurance and government agencies uh, at McKinsey & Company. Stayed there for almost 10 years. Uh, the last three years, I was uh, a principal in uh, Berlin office. And you joined McKinsey straight out from university? Yes, that's true. So my university time was quite long. So I started at the beginning macroeconomics, international economics, made my PhD in agricultural economics and quantitative macro studies, and then uh, studied also law so that I've uh, joined right after my uh, law degree. Oh, so I got to be careful what I'm saying when you're a lawyer. Just out of curiosity, what made you leave McKinsey? Why did you actually decide to just hop off, at, if I'm so free to say? I was um, 34 back then when the decision uh, was taken. And uh, for me, the question was, do I want to stay on the same track for the next 10 years? Um, so to become a senior partner inside McKinsey to continue advising my clients or do I want a change? And back then I was, first of all, not married, uh, still uh, able and willing to take a high risk so that uh, the decision then went clearly for more excitement, more volatility, more risk, because in my own perception that was the the perfect timing for, for an exit uh, and for taking this additional risk. I think at a later age, so around my age at 40, people get more settled, uh, families there, so the risk-taking appetite uh, recedes. And uh, back then, I was uh, really open for new challenges, new opportunities. And also, the last thing is McKinsey is a great learning place. But as everywhere, after uh, three to five years, the learning curve, curve uh, flattens. Uh, and although it's exciting, international, and functionally very diverse, But one of the things I find particularly interesting is to also see own development continuing. I gotta admit, many consultancies are a good place to actually do a lot of learning 
and learn a lot of useful tools. And I would be very curious how you actually settled for the business model, for the business area of raising, because I just imagine you have been tilted a little bit towards finance. So fintech would be the most probable, but why raising? What did you see? Did you have some magic insights? Did you use some analytic tools? How did you approach that? So back then at McKinsey, since 2007, I was actually responsible on the functional side for um, the knowledge and client development, specifically for deposit and investment products uh, for the EMEA region, meaning that uh, both knowledge development but also new client development was something I was doing uh, inside McKinsey. What happened back then was, um, first of all, uh, what I could see also from my clients, uh, which sometimes were uh, banks, regional banks covering several countries, that the savings and deposit rates and markets were very, very different country by country. The second thing is around 2008, of course, the global financial crisis happened and liquidity in the interbank market and the wholesale market dried up. So a lot of banks rushed into uh, getting quickly client liquidity and access to retail uh, deposits. And the last thing is with the continued volatility and with the intervention of central banks, of course, the client rates went down so that uh, uh, the area became very interesting as on the client side, uh, record low interest rates lead to the fact that alternative offers became relevant and interesting. And on the bank side, this became a focus area uh, in terms of uh, creating additional channels and diversification on the on the refinancing of the bank side. So a um, couple of observations uh, from inside McKinsey, but not only, uh, led to the uh, to the particular interest for the deposit for the deposit area. Talking about that, we may add for the benefits of our listeners who are not finance geeks that actually banks have to take on a lot of money. They don't own all the money they're lending out by credit, so they have to take it in from somewhere and actually um, the money you have on a savings account, on a current account, that is actually all money the bank on the other side at least partially lands out in credit. And so therefore, usually the difference between the interest rate they are paying you and the interest rate they're getting is how they make their money in a traditional business way. And so if the banks are in need for more money because they not only have this retail savings but also wholesale financing talking about issuing bonds and stuff like this so if this as you said dries up meaning there's less and less demand for the bonds you're selling and actually usually you're not bond selling bonds because you oh surprise i need a few hundred millions but actually you have bonds that you need to pay off and therefore you have to issue new bonds so when the banks started to see there is less and less demand for my bonds they have to turn on another way in order to avoid not being able to fulfill the promises from to bond holders 
Is that right? So that's right on on a high level. I think uh, the regulators also recognized that on the refinancing side, uh, banks were running to structural deficits before the crisis. Um, and many of the uh, insolvency cases or bail-ins were actually driven by those factors. First was that uh, liquidity duration on the taking side, so on the uh, liability side and on the asset side were mismatched. And that was widely mismatched, so that banks were refinancing very, very short and lending very, very long, so that they were taking an interest rate risk for a long time. And uh, that led to introduction of specific ratios and criteria like liquidity coverage ratio, which uh, leads to a better matching of the different durations on the bank book, on the bank balance sheet. The other thing which regulators also noticed uh, while analyzing the crisis is that uh, wholesale money is quick in reaction and quick to dry up. So that uh, uh, they introduced both the uh, coefficients and also the minimum requirements for, for net stable funding ratio, meaning for the funding quality and uh, the funding of the bank is then structured in a way that different buckets of funding from purely wholesale or interbank and then towards uh, the client funding are weighed in a different way so that the client and retail funding gets quite high and good coefficient, and long-term deposits are valued uh, higher than short-term uh, wholesale or interbank funding. So that, that led to the fact that there was also particular demand after the crisis, after the client long-term stable funding. Without getting into too much details, I would just add that the net stable funding ratio, NSFR, and the liquidity coverage ratio, also called LCR, are just a few of the numbers the banks have to submit on more on more regular basis to the overseers like BaFin, European Central Bank, and who else is out there. And so it makes a big headache for those banks to actually deliver this data. But on the other hand, it also makes the retail investor a more promising target because actually, as you said, it sticks longer. That means if you have a savings account, you put the money in and maybe in a year or two, you're planning to take a vacation on it. So that means the money sticks with the bank all the time and you're not actually opening an account, closing an account, opening an account, closing an account, but rather you have an account and then you have on a stable basis a certain amount of money on it and that is what the banks are counting on. That is where they get their money to work on and that le led you to your idea, right? That's correct. So that was, uh, we run a marketplace, so we need demand on both sides. So that was uh, the structural driver and justification for the demand on the bank side. So why uh, are there are banks out there willing to join our platform? And then, of course, there is the other side of the marketplace, which is uh, end clients. Uh, and there the market is huge. So in Europe in total, we have around 10 trillion euro in savings of private households. And the money is uh, right now uh, at a record low um, interest rate so that uh, quite naturally people are looking for better savings deals and better savings options out there. Uh, plus, uh, quite naturally, uh, this area is also one 
um, affected by uh, the move towards digital channels so that people are increasingly looking for offers online. What I would be curious about, because I tried to tickle out a little bit of your personality, how did the first people react when you told them, okay, I'm dropping my job as a consultant, which is usually paid pretty well, and I am going to open a company that does actually broker retail savings. How did the people react? It was a mixed reaction, uh, mixed being uh, roughly, I think, half of the people whom I told it uh, what I was planning of doing asked whether they can invest into the company. So the SID investing was uh, uh, quite easy uh, in that sense. And half of them uh, thought that I was uh, um, really uh, not thinking uh, <laughs> anymore. Uh, so they couldn't re like really um, realize why I was doing that and why as a McKinsey partner. I think one of the uh, VCs, which we met at the very beginning uh, and turned out to be one of our co-investors, really asked a couple of times whether I'm really a McKinsey partner and why would I be doing this as a McKinsey partner, switching gears and going to a startup company. So that uh, there was a, uh, to put it uh, uh, positively, a mixed but positive reaction. I can't avoid a smile when I hear this. And how did you actually start out with Raisin? What, what were your first steps and how did it actually develop till today? Were there several milestones you actually reached? Because I've seen in Crunchbase, you have raised a series A, B and C already. So can you tell our listeners who are out there and thinking of starting a startup, tell about getting to this point where you can actually raise repeatedly VC money. How was the way for you? So um, I think it's specific and challenging to uh, create a marketplace because um, you need uh, to um, punch above your weight on both sides, uh, especially on the provider side. Um, Uh, so what we've seen at the beginning is that a lot of banks we talk to like the concept, but no one really wants to be the first or the second one joining. Uh, why so? Because uh, people perceive it, at least perceive it as an unproven concept. So this was a first of its kind, so that there were a lot of questions around compliance, uh, anti-money laundering, uh, legal setup, Uh, client identification, KYC, and client due diligence rules, so that uh, it was an uncharted territory. And even if you can answer all the questions and have legal opinions, still uh, being a first one joining a business model feels like a bit riskier than being a number 10 or 20th joining the same business model, which is then proven and has uh, had its uh, child uh, diseases. So that uh, that was hard and challenging. The second thing which was uh, challenging is that uh, um, uh, to build up a product which is at the beginning as simple as possible so that we stripped out almost all complexity out of it, but to make it uh, more progressed and mature over time. Uh, so that uh, um, as, uh, as you could imagine, we started actually with just one bank and one offer. And we had the one bank and the one offer stalemate for quite some time, for four months in total, where the bank actually asked, uh, started to ask and question us 
almost every week when is the number two joining and whether they can talk to the number two and number three. And the challenge stayed uh, over the first 12 to 18 months to generate enough B2B demand, so to have the bank partners joining. By now, we've uh, progressed a lot. So we have already 34 banks live on the platform from 17 different countries and are adding uh, quite a few new partners, meaning that on that on that dimension, we are we're very good. Uh, we can uh, take any type of operation setup. We can ask all legal questions. We can cover uh, almost 30 countries from the regulatory side so that we are advanced, knowledgeable, and a reliable partner on this one. And uh, a way, uh, I think, the most professional company in the market offering, uh, offering such type of retail access to banks. So that was a long journey, but uh, the journey was, uh, was worth it. Uh, the second one was building out the platform itself and the product. And there we started with, with a simple product, which is a term deposit. And we started with long durations. Now, three and a half years down the road, we have overnight deposits. We have not as accounts. We have a fixed deposits. We have term deposits with short durations. We have flexible deposits, which can terminate any time. So we have a lot of different product variations. Um, and all of those we developed, of course, over time. But we try to satisfy both the client and the bank demand to a maximum uh, possible level. And also, we are introducing constantly new products, we will be going outside of savings and deposits quite soon so that we, uh, for the clients, we enlarge the areas of investment or areas of possible uh, investment beyond a pure, a pure play bank deposit. So that's in a, in a very short, in a very short nutshell, the journey. The raising the funds always remains challenging, of course. I think it's less challenging at the beginning because people just uh, believe your, uh, your vision. And people believe the quality of the team, uh, but then later on, they just uh, do not only trust on their gut feeling and the beliefs, but they want to see uh, hard numbers. They want to see customer acquisition costs. They want to see how fast you are getting revenues. They want to see the growth trajectory, scalability of the channels. So many, many more uh, hard facts belong to the round B and even more of those to round C so that uh, raising funds never never is a is uh, too simple um, at the same time i think uh, there is a saying it's always worth raising when you can raise so we tried also to raise even before the due time that is pretty interesting can you give us a few more hints in what kind of products you're going after savings so in general we will be staying on the um, on the client uh, assets uh, meaning on client uh, savings uh, just, of course, deposits are roughly, in continental Europe, half of private wealth. But quite definitely, clients need also other types of investments so that we will be, of course, offering access to equity and bond markets through digital uh, products, which are uh, low cost and uh, are very good value for money. We will not be doing this product standalone. We will be partnering with uh, other large, more experienced companies. The idea behind the platform or behind the marketplace is to offer the client digital access to investment products at a very low cost in a very convenient way so that uh, this vision which we had from the beginning on, we are slowly putting in place so that one of the next products will be a, a low-cost 
uh, exposure to passive investing and uh, then more many many more will be we might add for our listeners that we conducted this interview towards end of august so since we are trying to publish only one startup radio interview or news a week or every other week this may take some time till it becomes actual reality few more questions towards raising are you actually bank are you regulated are we um, are ourselves in uh, we have different uh, dimensions of our activity uh, and uh, our activity is uh, regulated differently country by country so one of our core activities is deposit brokerage as you rightfully said that activity doesn't need a license in germany which is our core market and is treated differently in different countries in the european union so for example in france areas financial intermediation license and in other countries we are either getting a license or we have a clearing from the regulator from the central bank that we do not need the license in the setup in which we are operating so that uh, that Part of the activity is uh, we're taking care of, and there we follow the local licensing rules. Um, a bit unfortunate, though, because it's very hard to build in this way a pan-European business if you have to follow licensing rules country by country, and there is no comparable fintech license or any other financial intermediation license which would be passportable across the European Union. Um, so that is one of the things I think which would enhance the common market and the single market very much in the future. The second level of it or the second dimension is the activity we're providing towards the clients and towards the banks. And there we have some part of the activities which necessitate either a payment license or a bank license. And in this regard, we're acting as an outsourcing provider towards the bank so that we give this license uh, in the name and on the behalf of one of our so-called servicing banks, which are white-label banks providing together with us the services towards the clients. So that uh, the whole package is, uh, for customer, it's a homogenous package, so he's becoming a Raisin.com or a Welschbahn.de customer, which are our two brands. In the background, uh, there is, of course, a lot of complexity which we are managing, including the Uh, licensing and regulatory part of it, on which we are either ourselves fully licensed or uh, rely as an outsourcing provider on the license of a financial institution. And I do assume your client has only to go once through this KYC process, meaning uh, has to put in all the passport data and stuff to make sure they are an actual assisting person and that they are the person they claim to be. Is this true? And how do you transfer this data to the banks? Is there some kind of agreement there? Yes, that is true. The uh, principle of the marketplace is a one-stop shop principle so that the client has to identify himself once. And he gets also just one technical access to an online banking platform where he can administer, open, close different accounts of different banks. So that uh, the core of the solution and of the value add is exactly the integration of various offers and various providers into one marketplace and uh, also maximum leverage of one KYC process at the beginning. 
Now, how do we operate it with the outside partners? There we have uh, different setups, meaning from uh, full KYC reliance towards uh, additional criteria asked by banks. Customer, in general, um, selects all the products and providers individually. And in this process, he also authorizes uh, our servicing bank and asks to forward data for identification reasons to the product provider, so to our local or foreign partner bank receiving deposits. That's it. We are, of course, following strict rules both on data protection and uh, uh, we are regularly auditing our high standards, meaning we have an annual audit by TÜV, and we have also audits on many, many other areas, including uh, our internal control systems, uh, penetration testing, so whatever you would expect from a very mature financial organization, we put it in place and uh, are as strict there as uh, any banking provider is. And do you yourself actually transfer this client money or are the banks doing it on behalf of you? So indeed, it all goes through banking infrastructure, meaning that uh, we do not touch the client funds at all. So they never land at our company account or at fiduciary accounts. So they always go through client accounts. And uh, the payment is executed either through SEPA uh, in the euro area mostly or uh, through Target 2 or, or any other um, payment rails uh, existing there. Also in the cross-currency uh, setting, we go through correspondent banks. So in that sense, we're using the banking infrastructure for the payments area. At the same time, client funds are always on individual accounts, fully protected by deposit insurance agency so that client also has any time access on those, plus any time the guarantee fund is uh, uh, subject to the guarantee fund protection. Guarantee fund protection means what? How is the money actually secured? So we have uh, in Europe a harmonized scheme of uh, deposit insurance guarantees, which means that uh, in uh, there are minimum standards which have to be fulfilled by any member country and also by the countries of the uh, European economic area. It means that uh, for every individual client, uh, 100,000 euro in equivalent in the local currency is subject to the protection of the deposit guarantee fund of that particular member country. Getting a little bit less technical and less finance geek. I took from the interview that there are actually trillions out there in potential client money and you just passed the threshold of 4 billion euros that you actually brokered as savings towards your partner banks. Congratulations to that. But seeing that there are trillions out there, aren't the 4 billions just a drop in the ocean? They are indeed. So uh, we also believe that we are right uh, at the beginning of the journey. So the market is uh, very large. And for us to make also a difference, both on the client side and also on the bank side, our objectives are much higher. Also, our ambition level is much higher than that. So that I fully agree with you. So 4 billion is a good starting point, but uh, uh, it's really a starting point in a very large market. I would be a little bit curious about your customers. So who are the people that actually invest the money with you or broker it via you? So 
it would be a little bit interesting for me since you can see on your website the cooperating banks and the interest rates and all this stuff, but nothing about the other side of the people who are the people that are entrusting you to broker this money. So um, indeed, we of course educate about our banks, but educate less about our customers who are subject also as mentioned to data protection rules uh, and uh, We can give uh, some glimpse on our, our typical customer profile. It coincides very well with the uh, different uh, savings life stages and uh, asset development of a typical banking customer so that our customers are a bit older uh, and are better educated than an average uh, person because those are the people, of course, who have higher savings and then where the Uh, our value proposition actually hits their demand or their their dormant demand. Our average customer is above 50. Uh, he, they are mostly male, so our share of uh, female customers is increasing, but it's still uh, more than 50% uh, are, are male customers, and uh, the customers are slightly better educated than the, uh, than the average. Okay, so 10% of customers, so slightly below that number, has a PhD degree. Uh, that's a fun fact about the uh, about the education background of of our um, affluent client base, which has high level of savings, which are typically male and uh, of course older than than millennials, uh, because those customers have then already amassed uh, our savings. How high are your actual customer acquisition costs? How do you target those people, and how much does it cost you to get them on board? So we talk, we use um, quite different channels. Uh, we um, list our products or products of our partners on affiliate channels. Compare, of course, um, have any type of online advertising from um, uh, using Google AdWords campaigns with outside partner uh, online. We are um, also offering the product through outside uh, providers. Also financial institutions. So, for example, you might have noticed that N26, one of the more prominent fintechs from Germany, offers N26 savings, which is an offer powered by Raisin, so that we integrate our offers also into outside partners, financial institutions, banks. Because we run TV campaigns uh, in uh, our core market, Germany, and rolling that out also broader in Europe. Uh, we run out-of-home campaigns, so it's a very wide mixture of uh, different channels we're using. And I did understand you kept quiet about the customer acquisition costs. That's a very accurate observation. <laughs> so coming towards the end of our interview, and may just before the reason that right now the internet appears to be very busy and our connection is getting worse, what are actually the incentive for the banks? Are they actually in need of those retail deposits do they do they really want it is there like a demand from the bank side we want to have more and more retail money because i could assume if they are coming through your channel they would be a little bit more likely to hop around between the banks that you have as partners because there would be be more easy for them to arbitrage the interest rates so we indeed an increasing demand 
um, because it has to do with a uh, simple fact that we have more and more banks live on the platform. I think the volumes, of course, the platform grows very much in parallel. We've uh, more than doubled our size this year already so that uh, we are able also to satisfy the demand of our partners, both in terms of uh, the volume of inflows, but also in terms of the stickiness of the funds. In uh, why are they uh, joining our platform? Those are many reasons, different reasons. Our reason is diversification because we are giving access to the largest European markets, direct platform access. So for them, it's a separate channel. It's a very um, easy to use and integrate channel, fully flexible. So that's it's like software as a service. So they pay only as they use. There is no a setup fee or minimum fee. So in that sense, it's quite a convenient, fast-to-use uh, diversification. It's very simple on the other side, currencies. So, for example, we have a couple of banks from Sweden, Poland, from UK, which have on their balance uh, euro uh, assets. So they want to refinance in the same currency, and this is the service we're offering. We have also on the other side uh, offers in U.S. dollar, Norwegian kroner, so that we give also our clients possibility to uh, to invest and deposit in the foreign currencies. Uh, so in that sense, the access to euro funds is uh, a valuable criteria and value proposition for the banks outside of the eurozone. Then we have banks which are fully wholesale funded until now, and for them having a like in retail area without a lot of effort and building retail infrastructure like on call centers, uh, online banking software, and so on is a valuable feature. And then we have also, of course, startup banks who want to build up uh, the funds quickly and our platform because it's quite large by now. So that there are different individual case, different individual backgrounds. I think the common denominator is that the banks like our speed, flexibility and quality of delivery and no bank which has ever joined us has left the platform. We know that a lot of investors are listening to our podcast. There have been numerous occasions when startups have been contacted by people listening to our interview who happen to be business angels or VCs. Are you currently looking for a Series D? We have uh, for um, roughly 60 million euro. And the last funding round the Series C we've made was just at the beginning of the year. So we're funding we're not we're not out on the market for the moment i would say uh we are not actively looking for uh, the, uh on the other side uh you, you should raise when when opportunity to raise so that uh we are not actively looking but uh passively listening before i ask my last question do you think we forgot something important something you would like to talk about I think we covered uh, almost all areas. I think one of the um, topics and one of the areas which we um, see as a trend and which we are really pushing through is uh, creating um, for a core area for the client. Uh, this is the largest, the largest single product out there in the banking. We are creating a, a uh, open uh, access for the customers uh, and a marketplace environment. I think if you think about it, it's of a really huge value and it mirrors a bit what happened in the fund industry in the 80s and the 90s. Until then, all major players had their captive funds 
which were offering only homemade products to their clients, so very protected environment. And out of the sudden, the whole uh, architecture, fund architecture, became much more open-ended and much more uh, accessible through one channel. You could buy funds of any providers. Brokers came up, which were giving it at very low cost. So uh, I think the same thing is happening on the savings and deposit side. Until now, uh, some banks have privileged access, like with the fund world. There are incumbents which have huge branch networks and old savings books. Those banks are overfunded anywhere across Europe. And there are a lot of uh, mid-sized players who are actually uh, increasing the competition and also going for client deposits. And we are a market instrument to level out the level of funding across the banking industry and to give the clients the best product available and the best product which fits their needs. So I think uh, this whole marketplace uh, environment is uh, very much in line with, which, with what happened in the banking industry before on the fund side, which happens also currently in parallel on the credit side with uh, credit brokers and marketplaces like Interhu, but also with banks opening up their infrastructure and offering. So I think uh, same and obviously and hopefully successful as in the other areas with the savings and deposits. I would, for example, like to mention Ventura here based in Frankfurt. And there would be the last question. If you would describe your life either as a book title, a movie title, or a combination of both, what would it be and why? I would say my in the last uh, have been uh, like a nice and exciting roller coaster ride where you don't know which direction you're going, but uh, 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 why it is, feels this way is uh, that uh, I think uh, every founder will and every entrepreneur it's a, an exciting journey and uh, you go through all emotional phases in records and in one month you might feel yourself as uh, being on the top of it and uh, winning all deals and just one week later it feels completely devastated you want to confess to your wife your parents and your child that the company is going bankrupt and any any feeling and shade of feelings uh, between those are possible so that's really also like about it a lot of a lot of volatility and a lot of emotions in between and that's that's also the fun fit thank you very much i'm very sorry for all the interruptions we had on both the sides unfortunately the internet is outside of our control so there's nothing we could do about that maybe i have to edit the interview to a point where some of the sentences of tamas are actually out and that may be just for the reason that they have been so disturbed that you could not recognize it nonetheless thank you very much for staying on thank you very much for the interview and hope to hear from you again thanks Jorn, and thanks to everyone